You're listening to the Kiwi Tripsters Travel Podcast. Brought to you by Abercrombie and Kent, pioneering experiential luxury travel since 1962. Buckle up and take off every fortnight to spectacular destinations as we share the inside word on all things travel. Whether you're into luxury travel or tripping on a budget, whether it's river cruising or foodie trips, we've got you covered with top tips and tricks so you can have an awesome travel experience. Tune in with Apple Podcast, Spotify, Stitcher, or iHeartRadio. And be sure to like and share this episode so everyone can get a taste of all things travel and now on to the show with your host from Christchurch New Zealand Mike Yardley and Chris Lynch welcome aboard I'm Chris Lynch and I'm Mike Yardley thanks for joining us for another episode of Kiwi Tripsters let's crack into it with a chat about Cartagena an absolute jewel of Colombia Mike it certainly is Chris it's fast to become one of my favorite places in the world it's been a standout for me this year and I think what it is is you've got um, that fabulous sort of Caribbean sultry weather and yeah. amazing culture so much beauty and the place is just stacked with so many legendary tales it was the Spanish Empire most important bastion back in the day because um, so much loot they plundered from the continent was stored in Cartagena before being shipped across the Atlantic. And because over a million African slaves were shipped to Cartagena, the region has a much, um, a much darker population makeup than the rest of Colombia. And that's also reflected in its fabulous food, really spicy food and, and great culture. It looks Absolutely beautiful, particularly the old town. That has to be mm. the starring attraction, looking by the photos that I've seen. Yeah, uh, and it's the sort of place where you don't really want to have a structured sightseeing routine because you just want to explore it on foot and let the surprises unfold as as you roam the town. Mm. At times when I was wandering around, I felt like I'd been transported to Seville because all of the cobbled lanes through Cartagena, it's so Spanish, as is the architecture, and the atmos is really similar. And there are so many really cool local stories to discover, like um, how they absolutely hate Sir Francis Drake <laughs> And, I mean, I remember when I was at Paparoa Street School in Christchurch as a, as a nine-year-old, we were often told by the teacher how Sir Francis Drake was this fine, upstanding English hero. Um, yet, uh, for those in Cartagena, they consider him a scumbag, a thief, a blackmailing <laughs> pirate who tried to wreck their town if they didn't uh, pay him 10 million pesos. <laughs> That's mighty fortress. I bet that could tell a few stories. Yeah, just outside the old town walls, uh, Badajas Fortress is a legacy to Drake's standover tactics, really, because after he rocked into town, the Spanish were determined to stop any other pirates uh, blackmailing them or raiding their town. So they built this absolutely staggering fortress. It's absolutely impregnable, the biggest fortress ever built in Spain's colonies. And it's absolutely laced with tunnels, lots of really interesting touches, like the fact that any outside noise reverberates along the tunnels. It was sort of like an early warning system of enemy approach, and the fortress never let the town down. Uh, there was not another successful pirate attack after Sir Francis Drake. What about Gethsemane? Yeah, if you think the old town feels a bit touristy or busy or airbrushed, um, 
there is a neighbouring barrio, Gethsemane, just beyond the old city walls, and it's still your real deal, rough and ready, working class neighbourhood. Lots of rustic charm, loads of personality. You'll see tiny little hardware shops rubbing shoulders next to throbbing salsa bars. There's kids kicking footballs in the lanes, stirring street art. And the interesting thing is there are no big, brash hotels in Gethsemane. However, give it a year or so, and that's probably going to change because Four Seasons have just bought up an entire street of Gethsemane, and they want to build a mega resort, which, as you could imagine, has gone down like a cup of cold sick there. So see it before it's too late. Yeah, that's a good point. Sometimes hotels are great, and other times when they're just plonked in the middle of an historic town, it can really wreck it. But anyway, uh, you love your food. Uh, What kind of food are we talking about here? What do you you eat over there? Yeah, well, being on the Caribbean, obviously seafood is really popular. (laughs) Anthony Bourdain formed over the ceviche in Cartagena. I tried um, a lot of street food, like Papa Rayanas, which are these big deep fried balls of mashed potato filled with ground beef. Yeah. And yeah, they were just fantastic. For sweet tooths, the African influence has um, completely defined their confectionery, homemade confectioneries. They sell a thing called cocada, and they're like these big rock candy patties with shredded coconut topped with various flavours like guava. They're really oh, nice. Yum. So almost pretend to be healthy there with the guava influence, thank you. Well, I was pretending to be cultural. <laughs> um, the biggest sensory assault is at Bizzurto Market, where the botches do not uh, skimp on any body part. I saw cow brains, cow stomach, cow tail, cow eyeballs all laid out on display at, you know, special Tuesday deal prices. Did you try any of these things? Uh, I didn't try anything of the cow department. (laughs) No, Mm. they even had armadillos for sale, which I found pretty confronting. The fruit section, oh, I was in Photoshop heaven uh, because it all looks just so Photoshopped. All the tropical fruit is so technicolored. Apparently, Cartagena grows more varieties of tropical fruit than virtually anywhere else in the world, and it's because the climate is just so perfect for it. Um, Lots of real fruit ice cream. Um, mango and soursop was um, uh, a, a winner for me in terms of, uh, you know, a couple of scoops on a cone. I shouldn't have asked because now I feel hungry and I want to go down to the dairy and buy, <laughs> buy an ice cream the fake way. <laughs> Any other nearby locales worthy of an Ozzy? Because there, there are plenty of other destinations close by. Yeah, there are. If you want to hang with the beach crowd and the jet ski crowd, um, across from the old town, across the water in the new city, which is a bit like the Gold Coast of Cartagena, there is this fabulous beach called Boca Grande. And um, I found it a bit a bit chintzy, to be honest. A better option is to catch a ferry out into the Caribbean Sea to the Rosario Islands, which are like little islets. They're so small, but the coral and the fish life is sensational. It all looks amazing. Now, courtesy of Lonely Planet, the world's number one travel guidebook brand, we're giving you the chance to win a copy of the Lonely Planet's Columbia Guide. It's the next best thing to being there. To be and to win, subscribe or rate uh, our podcast at Apple Podcasts, and your feedback will put you in the draw for that Lonely Planet Guide. Very easy. Good luck. We'd love to hear from you. Let's talk airport security, the queues, the hassles, the faffing about. Hmm, I'm trying to think of the airports that um, that go easy on me. I think most are okay, Mike. Mm-hmm. What about you? Or the ones I've been to. You're a very tolerant person. I well, hate airports as a general rule of thumb. 
I don't mind them if I'm going somewhere exciting, mm-hmm. even if they are really bad. Mm-hmm. But all that queuing, that doesn't sort of start to wear you down? No, I don't, I've never gone, this is, I've never thought to myself, this is annoying. No. Okay. But you've got some some good ones, some bad ones. Yeah, well, Zurich Airport was voted the world's best airport for passenger security screening this year. And it's an important award because obviously all that security screening, all that rigmarole is what can drive a lot of travellers crazy. Um, Zurich is incredibly slick, surgently efficient, as you'd expect from the Swiss. But aside from Zurich, the rest of the top 10 for security screening were scooped up by Asian airports like Changi in Singapore. Chang's beautiful. Yeah, it is. And it is very efficient, I think. Um, the only other non-Asian top performer, apart from Zurich, was Heathrow, which grabbed 10th spot, which I thought was a bit of a surprise result, uh, given you know how congested it mm. can get. But they have spent gazillions in the last couple of years to try and speed up that passenger flight. You see, a good airport has to be one where there's a bit of entertainment, there's yeah. lots of cafeterias, there's yes. things to do, there's massage chairs, there's things that can massage your feet, because then it doesn't matter if, you, if your flight is delayed because there's something mm. to do. That's true. You know? Yeah, absolutely. For you, though, what are the, the biggest knuckle-draggers, the ones that just yeah. muck around because they can? Well, this is purely anecdotal, but I would say Rome would be my most despised airport. Um, in terms of the American airports, yeah, I mean, they're pretty rough. Overall, I think they're pretty inefficient. Uh, Tel Aviv in Israel maintains the record for being the slowest processor of passenger departures and arrivals, according to the world um, administrators on such matters. But I suppose it's understandable because they are such sticklers for security. They do Mm. give you uh, more than just the once over. Interestingly, no Australasian airports have registered on the radar of the, you know, of these um, airport awards, which are held each year. I suspect our biosecurity rigmarole substantially lengthens processing times, you know, when you're coming into New Zealand. Plus getting the bags of the carousel in a timely fashion can be also uh, hit and miss, I've, I've noticed. I'm going to be very biased here, but I've got to say when I'm uh, catching an international flight from Christchurch International Airport, I've Mm. always found the security Mm. guards, um, customs, very, very friendly, really nice. I remember a time where there was some delayed flight uh, because of some um, threat that wasn't actually existing, and it was just great service. That's true. Nothing's a problem. I don't have a problem flying out of Christchurch. I think where you do have a lot of congestion is because of all those late night flights that arrive from Australia, all on top of each other as such, you know, around 11 o'clock, 12 o'clock. It can lead to a lot of congestion in the arrivals. And because of our biosecurity layer of security as well, it does slow things down. Heathrow has made uh, the border control experience faster for Kiwis, something good for Kiwis. Yeah, well, uh, it certainly is. In fact, all UK airports will be expediting processing for Kiwis because the Brits have finally decided to allow Kiwis and Aussies to use their smart gates, or e-gates as they call them in the UK. Um, So when you're passing through the border in Britain, yeah, we'll uh, have that electronic um, efficiency to speed us through. They're very similar to our smart gates, uh, matching your passport with facial recognition technology. For the past year or so, um, you've had to pre-register 
to use them in Britain, which is just so officious. So yeah, now it's open slather. And the Brits are also ditching those pesky landing cards. So Did you they seem like a time waste to those things? Oh my goodness, they do. I mean, obviously in New Zealand, they are still uh, required. We've ditched our departure cards, yeah, we but we've kept the arrival cards, particularly once again for biosecurity reasons. But yeah, it's all, it's all faff, isn't but it? But I don't Faffing mind. Around. I do not mind though if it's slow, then I've, I want to be, I want to feel like I'm in a secure environment. So I don't mind. Mm. I don't mind the delays. And I also don't mind the use of facial recognition technology now, yeah. particularly the fact, you know, you think about how many times you can, with your e-passport, yes. you look at a camera, it knows you, it That's says, true. okay, you're fine, go on through. I don't mind that, but I know that some people mm. find that kind of a bit creepy, but they hey, do. it's security, too bad. Yeah, absolutely. Biometrics is uh, powering more and more aspects to the whole airport experience. Check-in, baggage drops, border control, even the boarding process. Yeah. Um, I noticed recently that British Airways, many of their flights no longer have staff at the gate to check your boarding pass before you head down the jetway. So it's all done by facial recognition technology and smart gates, you know, as you are actually walking onto the plane. Uh, and BA reckons it's uh, it now only takes them 22 minutes to board 400 people which has slashed the boarding time in half, which is pretty cool. So from the curb to the gate, or the travel ribbon, as the industry calls it, biometric technology is being increasingly deployed. I went through Hamad Airport in Doha a couple of months ago, and it's ever-present, all of that biometric technology, very slick operation. I love it. In your view, Mike, what choke points can the traveller help minimise themselves? You've got a few tips. Yeah, I reckon airport security is... Um, the most odious aspect to air travel, that the, the, the hurry and wait frustration is ever present through the queue, particularly when you've got people hauling half of their household contents onto the plane. But there are some tricks to help you speed it up. Don't haul all of your household contents on a plane. Just take what you really need with you, with, you know, your, your carry-on baggage. Um, unless it's ridiculously hot, I will actually wear a jacket and put all of like my, my metallic objects into the pockets of my jacket. You know, wallet, watch, sunglasses, mm. phones, keys, coins, the works. Yeah. And that way it's a lot easier just to sling everything into the one bin and one fell swoop and breeze through that security procedure. Um, I really like something that I've been doing at Auckland International Airport for the last year or so, whereby there's a whole lot of bays of bins so when you're rocking up to security screening, you don't have to wait for the schmuck in front of you to get themselves <laughs> fully disassembled. You mm. just go to, there's like, you know, maybe 20 different bays. Yeah. So that certainly look makes it faster. I Absolutely. Al I always look ahead to see who has forgotten to take their laptop out, who has forgotten to take their watch off. Yes. And I mean, these are things that I think people should know. I know that there's first-time travellers, but there come on, guys. I know, it's not hard. You know, I'm always surprised that they have to ask, do you have a laptop? Do you have any <laughs> phone. metal options? I mean, yeah. this is just so simple. I know. So simple. Um, by the way, if you've ever wondered why your liquids, aerosols and gels should be in a plastic bag, on those security uh, machines is a sniffer device that actually tests the air inside the bag of the, the, of the plastic to make sure... You're not packing anything else in there that's dodgy. So, mm. yeah, I just thought you'd be interested. It's very nice, very yeah, nice. Very Coming up, fun with the fins. We're in Helsinki. Stay tuned. Kiwi Tripsters will be right back after this break. 
Abercrombie and Kent was born on safari in East Africa in the early 1960s. It's grown to become the world's leader in luxury adventure travel. Now with 56 offices and more than 2,500 travel experts on the ground around the world, Abercrombie and Kent takes the world's most discerning travellers on exquisite journeys in more than 100 countries and all seven continents. This is luxury travel redefined, taking you out of your comfort zone in exquisite comfort on handcrafted, bespoke, private and small group journeys and luxury expedition cruises. Talk to your travel agent, call Abercrombie & Kent on 0800 441638 or visit abercrombiekent.co.nz. Helsinki. How does this compare to other Scandi uh, capitals like, say, uh, Stockholm? It's quite distinctive because its history is a hybrid, really, Chris, of being ruled by the Swedish and then the Ruskies. They've only actually been an independent nation, Finland, for a century. And Helsinki is such a, a little gem, really. It's a very walkable city, very compact. It's like a grittier, miniature blend of, say, Stockholm and St. Petersburg with a few Finnish flourishes, but everyone yeah. speaks English there. The Finns are so friendly, and for a first-timer, it's such a great city to free roam. And of course, um, if you go in the summer months of the European season, sort of, you know, June, July, August, you've virtually got 24 hours of daylight. Yeah. I don't know why I know this, but they've got quite a strong design scene there, don't they? They do, yeah. It's actually very girly-oriented, if I can say that. Nothing wrong with that. Um They've got all sorts of showpiece design boutiques. They can be found in the Tory Quarter of the CBD. I found this fantastic homewares store. I've got a love affair with homewares stores. You do. Belle Muir is a cracker in Helsinki. They pride themselves on ethical luxury, and they do great things with reindeer leather, by the way. Uh, but, yeah, probably the most famous brand to come out of Helsinki is Mary Meko, which has been a poster child for Finnish fashion and furnishings for 70 years. Uh, lots of eye-catching patterns, loud colours. In fact, that's what differentiates Finland's take on Nordic coal. The Finns love bright, bold colours. They also like rocks, don't they? They do love rocks. And all over Helsinki, it's like nature has left its calling card from the last ice age. There's all of these mounds, hillock-like mounds of granite rock rising up from the street. So when they were developing the city and have continued to, rather than blowing these little mounds of rock up, they've been thoughtfully built. The city's been thoughtfully built all around them. Mm. So it feels very raw, very elemental, very with nature. I like that look. I think it's nice. It is fantastic. Um, when it comes to man-made structures, there is this magnificent little chapel called Kempi, and it looks like a giant egg, and it's all built in wood. The locals adore it, and it was built partly in response to the fact that Finland has such a hideous domestic violence record, and the idea was central city workers in Helsinki uh, could pop down to Kempi uh, Chapel at the end of the day, download their aggravations and their worries from their day at work so they don't take their stresses home 
to their families. And there's even volunteer counsellors and little private cubicles on site if you need some (laughs) one-on-one. It is so cool. And it seems to have actually helped drive down uh, domestic violence stats in Helsinki. The other interesting um, new sort of piece of statement architecture is their new central library, Audi. Now, of course, in New Zealand, in Christchurch, Tūranga, the central library has already been winning awards this year. And um, a lot of the design features within Tūranga and Christchurch were inspired by Audi. Um, and uh, Audi is only about 18 months, 12, 18 months old. Um, but yeah, uh, they've got so many cool touches like living olive trees within the library, like up on the second, third floor. Um, amazing range of services and facilities. Like they've got free to use recording studios, lecture spaces, gaming consoles, 3D printers. I watched this old guy use a 3D printer to make a replacement handle uh, for their fridge at home. I thought that is so cool. That is so cool. Mm. And you're right about Turanga here in Christchurch, New Zealand. Uh, I I kind of took the mickey out of it first when I heard it was going to be the so-called 21st Knowledge Century uh, building. And I thought, what is this all about? But it's more than a library. In fact, uh, try and find a book there and you'll be um, (laughs) hard-pressed. Now, I don't know if I want to ask you this because I'm still feeling hungry from last segment, but Uh, um, finished food, it's pretty good. Yeah, fronting the harbour, Market Square is the place to grow. Rays, uh, you can uh, try your hand at Baltic herring or Nordic berries. In fact, the Finns are besotted with their berries, like sea buckthorn, Arctic bramble berries, and juicy cloud breeze. I binged on all of these berries. I can't say I was convinced by one of the other local staples, salted licorice, which is doused in ammonium chloride. It sounds Ew. like a chemistry nightmare, doesn't it? Yeah, but it does. apparently it's very good for the winter. It sees you through the winter, even though it tastes horrific. Inside the old market hall down in Market Square, that is the place to go for some local cuisine. You can sort of like eat your way through Finland in an hour. Um the pick for me was a plate of potato waffle and shrimp skagen. It was absolutely Ooh. fabulous. And by the way, Lapish, as in Lapland, Lapish cuisine is hugely popular in Helsinki. So if you really want to, even though, you know, we've been celebrating Christmas and so forth, you can tuck into a few cuts of reindeer. Just don't call mm-hmm. it Rudolph. Okay. Um, elk, moose meatballs are pretty good. Um, I didn't go as far as trying beer meat. I just couldn't do it. Oh, really? Mm. Mm, I probably would just because you got to try something once. Fair enough. Hey, um, this place is very famous for saunas, and we're not talking the dodgy ones, are we? No, no. Well, there's probably a bit of dodge. There's probably quite a few, actually, to be fair. <laughs> but but, you, but you, did you try some of these saunas out that are so famous over there? Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's, it, I don't know, maybe I'm um, a more private person than the Finns naturally are because generally when they go to a sauna, it's the full naked experience mm. in close quarters with complete strangers. Which no, thank you. I just find a little bit too challenging. Yeah, mm, I can to, barely do a public do. pool, to be honest, but anyway. That's true. However, there is a good option for people like me. So if you are like me, down on the harbour, just around from Market Square, they've got this fabulous centre they call Alice, and it's only been open a few years. It's a complex of sauna cabins and outdoor seawater pools. Some are heated, some are like minus 35. (laughs) Very polar. (laughs) But it's a great full sensory experience of temperature extremes with with an amazing view to die for. And you don't have to take your clothes off. So that's the best thing. (laughs) 
finally, in this edition of Kiwi Tripsters, let's uh, take a bit of a tour of the London pubs. Mike, you've poured a few pints in your time in London, this whole London pub scene. I'm on the fence over this because I know there are a lot of um, Kiwi pubs, Mm -hmm. but I feel like when I go to London, I I don't want to experience a Kiwi pub, but there are plenty other pubs there, right? There are. There are literally hundreds and hundreds in London alone. But uh, when I was doing my OE, uh, when I was about 27, like a lot of Kiwis, you end up pouring pints in pubs when you're doing the big OE over there. I actually worked in um, a pub in Orpington, Kent, which was, uh, is still the local favourite of Nigel Farage. That's where he goes down to have a, an ale or two <laughs> and talk about Brexit. Um, but yeah, London's pub gathering tradition is just so strong and they do it so well. They've got so many really interesting time-honoured watering holes and they reach back hundreds of years so many stories, so many famous clientele, drama, scandal, even murderous. It all happens in these pubs. Mm, some of these pubs are really, really old, aren't they? Like yeah. we're talking hundreds and hundreds of years old. Yeah, absolutely. Um, about 500 years is about as far as they go back in London. Near the British Museum, Ye, ye Old Mitre Tavern in Hoban is um, one of London's great veterans. It's a long-living local since the Elizabethan age, and it's very low-ceilinged. It was built in 1546. In fact, in the courtyard at the back of the pub, Queen Elizabeth I would regularly dance in that courtyard, and it was originally licensed to um, a bishop. And uh, you can still see the blackened stump of the courtyard maypole that Queen Elizabeth I would frolic around. Uh, there is a dedicated room for smoking known as a snug, which was added in the 1700s. <laughs> so you can go smoking in a snug from the, you know, from 1700 or so. Mm. And very few of those original snugs remain. Uh, Mitre has preserved their one. Uh, the pub decor, it kind of looks as if someone has managed to just freeze the whole thing in time. Mm. Tudor beams, coal fires, portraits of Henry VIII, and dozens of whiskey water jugs hanging from the ceiling. It is fabulous. You can do these by having a bit of a walk tour, can't you? That's still relevant, isn't it? Yeah, when I lived in London 20 or 30 years ago, I discovered many, well, yeah, 20 years ago, actually, um, I discovered many of these storied pubs uh, on a city stroll with London Walks, and they do a really good job of, you know, leading guided walks um, all over the city. But, yeah, if you want to stake out uh, a few choice pubs, particularly the the ones out of the way down back alleys, London Walks do, um, yeah, a fine job in unearthing them for you. And some of these pubs, if you like, are very historic. So a lot of writers used to hang out at these places, don't they? Yeah. Just for their historical value. They do, yeah. It's a recurring theme with many of these pubs, how they resonated with, you know, the acclaimed writers of the day. Ye Old Cheshire Cheese in Fleet Street is a great specimen. It's very old, but not at all cheesy, by the way. Uh, The scroll (laughs) on the front door lists the 15 monarchs who have reigned since it first opened in 1667. Once again, it's all low slung, all oak panel. Um, There's sawdust still strewn on its floors because it makes it a lot easier for the staff to mop up the beer slops. Uh, Samuel Johnson was one of its first famous patrons and it was also a very regular hang pad for the likes of Dickens, Oscar Wilde in the 19th century. Another literary landmark would be Uh, Spaniards Inn in Hampstead Heath dates back to 1585 it was actually immortalised by Dickens in the Pickwick Papers and it even gets a shout out in Bram Stoker's Dracula and located down a dark alley it 
does have the sort of atmosphere of being a very sort of clandestine meeting place uh, or running into highwaymen in black coats. And the reason for that, some people say, is because it's where Dick Turpin uh, was born. And apparently he learnt his criminal ways in the pub and down those back alleys. So what about from criminals to ghosts? I'm just thinking here, many will probably claim to be haunted because they do have that look about them, don't they? Yeah, they do. Spaniards <laughs> in particularly, I think, does have a, quite a creepy feel. The bar staff at Spaniards routinely claim of seeing apparitions of Dick Turpin over the years. Then again, I would probably prefer to seeing Dick than Dracula. Um, the ghost stories uh, from that pub uh, just continue to spill forth, as they do at a really sinister-looking pub in Spitalfields in London. It's called the Ten Bells. And every Jack the Ripper walking to it in London will go to the Ten Bells. And when you go inside, it's so Victorian. Faded decor, candlelight, um, and there are so many haunted stories emanating from this pub. It looks sort of shabby chic, and it was a regular haunt for the Victorian prostitutes who all fell victim to Jack the Ripper. I don't know if I'd be interested in that, actually, but I suppose maybe it's the... the... It's a bit macabre, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Um, There are plenty of decent riverside pubs, though, I noticed as well. There are. Just a couple of tips. The Dove in Hammersmith. 400-year-old classic. Um, The composer of Rule Britannia lived on the upper floor of that pub. (laughs) Uh, Ernest Hemingway, Dylan Thomas, Richard Burton, they were all regulars there on the bar stools. The Dove also is probably one of the best places to watch the annual uh, Oxford-Cambridge boat race because it's got this fantastic terrace right above the Thames. And also, Riverside, the prospect of Whitby at Wapping sits alongside the old execution dock. And as the name would suggest, that is where many a pirate met his end. And that pub actually began life as the Devil's Tavern in 1543. Uh, It's got so much maritime memorabilia within the pub. And on the balcony of the Prospect of Whitby, a creepy noose swings in the breeze to commemorate a guy called George Jeffries, who was also known as the Hanging Judge. He would drink at the pub every day after his day's work at the execution dock. I'm not sure I would want to be at a pub looking at a, a, a noose swinging in the breeze. That's really, <laughs> really odd. I'm surprised there hasn't been somebody offended by that. Oh, I know. You know? Yeah. Hey, just further up the the river, yeah. what about the Mayflower? That's popular. Yeah, this is in Rotherhithe. It was so named because right next to the original um, point uh, along that river is, um, oh, sorry, right next to the pub is the original mooring point of where the ship the Mayflower, set off to Southampton with those pilgrims packed for the new world. Um, The pub was first built in 1550. And once again, stunningly atmospheric. They're really big into taxidermy at the Mayflower. And it's quite an acquired taste. But if you've ever wanted to see the likes of stuffed rats in cages, you'll find that in the taxidermy display at the Mayflower. I'm not surprised if you're looking at other things uh, up the road with hanging um, <laughs> nooses, etc. Yeah, right. so no, it's all very macabre. Give me one. Just give me one pub that you, you'd you have to choose mm. that you think is something that people must go to. Yeah, it is tough. Go on. It is tough. I would go for the Georgian by London Bridge. William Shakespeare <laughs> propped up the bar here and his plays were performed in the courtyard 
to the balconies of patrons who lapped it up, and that courtyard previously was the site of the Tabard Inn, where Chaucer set the beginning of the Canterbury Tales. So there's just so Ooh. much history, Chris. Sounds nice. Uh, now I feel like a beer and <laughs> uh, fruit ice cream. Yes. And all sorts. yes. So I'm going to go do that. Actually, um, thanks for joining us. We'd love to get your feedback on anything we have discussed, anything you would like us to discuss as well. Please don't hesitate to engage with Chris and I. Um, our show notes are listed on the website, kiwitripsters.co.nz. And thanks to Abercrombie and Kent. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, your job is to do the notes, by the way. I can't, oh, deal, yes. with the, I can't deal with the admin. Um, listen, a new episode of Kiwi Tripsters will be released in a couple of weeks' time. And as always, we would love you to subscribe to our channel if you haven't already on Apple uh, Podcasts or the services of your choice. Make sure you make a comment as well. And on the next episode, we will be talking about sustainable travel. Now, don't worry, it's not a boring episode because it's actually quite exciting, I think, Mike. Well, we'll try uh, uh, and do that. Chris, no pressure, no pressure. Uh, plus, we will hang 10 on Oahu's North Shore. Catch you in a fortnight. Until then, travel well. See you soon. And that's a wrap for this episode of Kiwi Tripsters. Liked what you listened to? Then join us for our next episode of Kiwi Tripsters, where we bring you more travel inspiration, giveaways, and insider knowledge with expert guests on the show. Connect with us on Facebook and Instagram, and visit us on kiwitripsters.co.nz. But most importantly, subscribe and comment on Apple Podcasts, and tell us what you think of our show. Till next time, safe travels. Safe travels.